Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. This episode of the Artelligence Podcast was recorded at a conference held in September of 2011. It's a panel comprising Guy Bennett, Nick McLean, Nick Aquavella, and Helena Maud, where they're discussing the inner workings of the modern market. They very quickly focus on the painter Juan Miro. We're presenting this to you now in part because of the extraordinary rise in the Miro market, but also to share with you the insights these four have. It begins with Guy Bennett explaining how the end of the 20th century has changed the behavior of so many collectors. But let's let Guy explain for himself. Um, yes, I, I absolutely believe um, in the last 10 years we've seen um, a rapid change in the marketplace. Um, and it's a, a, a fantastic change that's taking place. I think in the terms of the, you know, the, the grand scheme, that transition from the 20th century to the 21st century is, is minuscule. But again, in terms of the art market and our understanding of the art market, in particular the last 100 years, it's had um, an enormous impact. I think human nature, it's human nature rather to want to sort of corral information, categorise it, group it, um, compartmentalise it. Um, and the art world is, is, is no different. And if you look at the auction houses, and I can say this having worked there without offending anyone, they also do the same. And if you look at the last 100 years, the two main collecting fields have been Impressionist and Modern Art and contemporary art, and they made sense at the time, but today they're incredibly irrelevant. Um, but they shape how people collect art. You were either an impressionist and modern collector, or you were a contemporary collector. And that's still happening today. But with this, with this sort of uh, movement, or rather transition from the 20, into the 21st century, I think things have been changed. We no longer exist in the, in the sort of the micro world, we, we, sit, we sit up above it and we're able to see it. And again, I recognise it's another category, but we now call it the 20th century. It has a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, and it allows collectors to understand what's around with them. I think there's a, they're almost scared to make a movement when you exist within it. But now that we don't exist within it, you can, there's, a, there's a certain confidence that exists. Um, one be- begins to see the bookends of their collection moving. You're no longer just a sort of a impressionist, a modern collection, but you can begin to, to, to recognise and, and articulate ideas within the collection by moving forward or backwards, which didn't exist you know, 15 years ago. And I think with this transition, um, one begins to see a confidence in the market. Um, you, one isn't sort of um, uh, tied down by these sort of preconceived ideas. Um, and with that confidence uh, um, becomes this f- sort of wonderful freedom. You're no longer collecting in this, in this very small area, but you, you can start to, to collect in this direction. And most importantly in this market, and where you're seeing this enormous growth, is you can start collecting in this direction. Um, you can start collecting um, works from Asian artists, uh, Middle Eastern artists, um, Eastern Bloc artists. So it's, it's a fantastic moment in time. And things are changing drastically. So uh, the late Picasso seems to be the market that most visibly captures that, right? You have people buying late Picasso works from both sides. I I think there are a number of artists, but yes, Picasso's the obvious one. But if you look at any of those artists that 
you know, there was, always a, there was always a debate in the auction houses where certain artists should be sold. Should it be in post and contemporary or should it be in Impressionist and modern? And, th- and those artists being Dubuffet, Miro, Braque, well, not Braque so much, but um, their, their, their career spanned um, that, that sort of that tipping point, that pivotal moment. And so um, you are seeing rapid growth in those fields. Miro's just had a show, and, and actually Nick and Helly can talk to that you know, very directly, but there are a cluster of artists that... Collectors are feeling very comfortable collecting and adding to their collection, which were very focused at one point. Well, uh, Nick, can you talk about Miro and McLean? Can you talk about M- Miro and uh, where that market is? You, we just talked about it's not exactly cheap, but that there's still uh, uh, within that there haven't been you know a hundred million dollar Miro the way there is a hundred million dollar Giacometti and a hundred million dollar Picasso, and and how that uh, uh, relates to this. Well, I was um, talking a little earlier with yep. yeah. uh, with um, Helly about this, and uh, we both agree that. Miro, in a way, is, is possibly one of the more undervalued of the great 20th century masters. You've seen this sort of increase in the market for late Picasso, late Kandinsky, late Leger, and late Miro, actually. There's been, obviously, some, some very good prices of late. There's no doubt that the big shows, like the one that's uh, taking place at the Tate, that's going to be coming over here eventually to the National Gallery, make a big difference about how people um, view the artist. And there was a big emphasis in the tape show on the late work. And so that inevitably will have an influence. But, you know, it's true. I mean, you look at, say, the, the way an artist like, um, you know, we were talking, well, talk about Picasso, how his market has moved dramatically for the late work. And uh, I think the top price, um, was it, like about $20 million, something like that, for a, for a late work, which obviously we're not seeing that yet for, with Miro. It's bound to happen. I mean, he was an art... Like every artist, they can go through um, periods when the quality is less fine. And that certainly happened with Miro. It's quite variable, but there are some many great works, from, from, particularly from the 60s, which are, quite frankly, underpriced. And I think we're going to see that as an area that's going to move forward. Heli? Yes, hi. How are you? So... Um, uh, no, Nick said it right. Miro, the reason you haven't seen Miro's selling for the prices of Giacometti's or Picasso's is, first of all, Miro's... Great Miro hasn't really come up to the market, and um, you, haven't, you need a great example to establish a very high price. But I do believe that the late Miro's that earlier people thought weren't as good and they thought the artist was older and the paintings were a little looser. And now, when as the supply is shrinking in the early great examples, people initially are forced to look at other works by the artist in the later periods that are maybe more available in the market. And then by looking at these other works and, and by you know, being around these other works, people have then realized that as the artists were older and were more mature, they weren't just using their famous names late in their lives to sell these paintings, but the work is actually very intellectual, very important. And, And the same way late Picasso 
about 10 years ago had that incredible run until today where the, the paintings literally went up 10, 15, 20 times in value. You know, I believe that the late Miro market is on track to doing the same thing. You've already seen late Miro's go up, you know, two or 300 percent. And I think that that market has a lot more room to grow. And uh, to answer your initial question about why we haven't seen, you know, these huge numbers in Miro. I mean, look, if you have a great Dutch interior or a great Miro constellation, if that comes up today, you know, you can easily get to 50 plus million dollars. If that comes up privately or publicly? Uh, I'm talking purely in the auction market where you can actually see the results. Privately, privately... Privately has already happened. Privately, I, I was just gonna, I was gonna, and why hasn't it come in that visible way because of the nature of the market? Why is it happening privately and not publicly? Well, I mean, I think that's one of the problems when you try and analyze the art market from the outside looking in. Uh, everybody wants to be able, like Guy was saying, like be able to see a graph, be able to see a chart. I mean, if you just purely looked at the auction market, you would think that you know Matisse was a quarter of the value of Picasso. But I think everybody up here knows, and probably most people in the audience, that you know, great Matisses have sold privately for well in excess of fifty million dollars. And if the right one were to come up, it could easily bring over a hundred million dollars. So I don't, I don't know if there's a Miro that could bring over a hundred million dollars, but I certainly know of ones that have sold for in excess of 30 million and uh, they're not anomalies it's it's like Heli was saying it's, it's it's really i mean there are a lot of factors involved i mean it, it, if the if if the right person passes away in their state owns a great mural and it ends up going you know if susan brody had had a great mural be a different conversation that's right and then just to go back to what guy was saying about you know how there are these certain artists that kind of bridge the gap i mean if you look at miro's work and uh the influences he had on so many contemporary artists. I mean, his use of collage, his use of different materials. It's uh, it's very easy to see how someone, for example, who might collect, uh, you know, Rauschenberg or Johns, could take an interest in Miro, or even something more contemporary. I mean, you could see how a Damien Hirst uh, collector could be interested in Miro. I mean, you know, there's a series of paintings Miro did in the late 20s that are kind of called these picture poems, which was unprimed canvas. Uh, where he would uh, you know, basically just squeeze the paint out of the tube, and then he would also use elements of collage. And one of them that is fresh in my mind is, you know, has some feathers on it, and it's similar to the idea of you know, Hearst 70 years later sticking butterflies on her. So, you know, it's very easy to see now how people can, like Guy was saying, extend the bookends of their collection. You're being too polite. Guy. Yeah, and, and on, on that note, I mean, we, we always dwell, we always seem to focus on those artists. That sort of that are sort of from 1940, 1950, 1960. It's important to go the other way as well. There are artists also that bridge that gap. Um, you know, Nick and I were talking earlier. You know, Picasso said there wouldn't be art without Cezanne, and so you're seeing a lot of art, a lot of collectors today start to look back at those. That sort of that genesis of the idea of sort of abstraction, moving away from those. You know, they 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 beaten to death. You know, the idea of painting a, a, that sort of sweeping vista. And then it was sort of tinged with the idea of modernity and that changed the landscape. Um, um, and then you, you get someone like Cezanne who sort of steps away from that and the actual application becomes far more important. So we're seeing artists go back that far as well.
But how, how are they buying? The, you're, you know, the, you, these are your clients. They're coming to you looking to uh, uh, buy works. I'm assuming you get some sense of what their goals are as uh, uh, collectors, and it sounds like it's different from uh, 30 years ago where you tried to uh, have the best historical example of a, an artist or a period's work. It sounds like people are beginning to break down these barriers and start telling different stories, but still with these, you know... Uh, a works rather than just with what they can, you know, cobble together. No, I think there's, I mean, you know, certainly I not want to offend anyone, but there's, there's the opportunity now because you're breaking out of, of, those, of, of those constraints to play a much more sort of active role in terms of curating the collection and telling stories and, and sort of understanding that sort of magical thread that tied it all together and it exists on paper. Why can it not exist in your collection? Um, and, and is it different for you know, American or European collectors as opposed to uh, Russian Gulf states or well, Asian I think, collectors? I mean, I think one thing you have to do is you have to categorize collectors. I mean, there's people that collect because they're interested in art and they have a certain amount of money that they want to spend. And then there's kind of what has grabbed the headlines in our market the last 15 years, which is basically like trophy hunting. And I think, um, you know, that, that's a totally different thing altogether. I mean, that's where you see people wanting to just buy the absolute best example that they can find in whatever field. And the money is not really the point. If, if, if you show them something that's $30 million and for that artist it's a B picture, they're not, a, they, they're not as interested. They'd rather spend the $80 million to buy the A example. And, and you know, that's, that, that's kind of why you see these just tremendous prices come up, whether it be auction or ones that happen privately, they get out into the open. I mean, there's people now who, there's been so much wealth created in the world. There's, this market has become so international that in addition to all the people that always used to collect who still do, you've added basically the same amount of people, whether you're talking about growth from Asia, the Middle East, Russia. I mean, you have, everybody always throws around these words. Like, let, let me just ask you a question. When you say an A work, defined by for that collector who yeah. presumably is fairly new to, to this, defined by whom? Do they take your word that it's an A versus a B work? Do they take an art advisor's? Who, who's helping them make that decision to, to pass up the $30 million work for the $80 million? Well, a lot of it is how it's perceived by what they've been exposed to so far. So if they've been a, an active collector for five or six years, this is one of the things that sometimes frustrates us, is if someone's been collecting five or six years, and, and unlike in years past, you might have someone come right into collecting at the highest level and not build their way up. So they've been collecting five or six years. We'll use the example of, say, Picasso, okay? And so a, a, a Dora Mara comes up, and it's estimated at, I don't know, say 15 to $20 million dollars. They, they're, what, what they're looking at is basically what they can pull up on Artnet and what they know is sold in the last 10 years from memory or 6 years from memory. And what sometimes they don't understand is like, yes, this is a great picture, but there are so many more that might be better. Or, there, or maybe it's the opposite. Or this is actually a lot better than you think just because it's the same size, same date. As no and, you know, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't quite know how to sum all that up, but that's something you're that a collector either develops themselves or hopefully gets good advice from a dealer or advisor. I mean, the auction houses obviously have their interests. They're pushing what they're trying to sell. A dealer will have his interest pushing what he's trying to sell. 
but it's a much faster, steeper learning curve these days. As an example of that, Heli, uh, you know, there, in February, a, a group of Mirandis uh, sold in London, and uh, there was a lot of conversation around that, that uh, several of them were bought by Chinese uh, buyers. And I gather that that started on the private market and sort of then moved into uh, the auction market. And I was wondering if you could tell, you mentioned that there's a good story behind that. I was, you know, tell how that works. How does a group of Chinese uh, buyers, uh, not an inconsiderable artist, but not certainly a, a, one of the big name uh, Western artists, buy, start buying an Italian uh, still? Okay, no, absolutely. But before I answer that question, I just wanted to say one more thing about the Miro market. And you had asked why, why at auction haven't we achieved the same prices that we're, dis- we're telling you up here on the panel that have been reached privately. And the reason is because a lot of people, who, a lot of active sellers or collectors who've got great Miro paintings don't want to take the risk of putting a painting at auction the, for fear that it might not sell for an expectation for the price they feel they should get. So it's very difficult for an auction house to get these great paintings if they're not from estates. So when, when, when a private gallery is dealing with, with the owners of these paintings directly, they can ask really the price that the owner of the painting would like to achieve. So because of that, higher prices are reached in the galleries. Let, let me, before you go on to Marini, yeah. uh, so... That, to me, from the outside, would suggest, looking at what happened with, with Giacometti and even with some of the Picassos, that once there's a public knowledge, you know, when Giacometti, it was the MoMA show, seemed to have a real effect over, you know, a five- or seven-year period. We've got this uh, Miro show. Is it a, a sort of a broadening of an understanding from a, a small group of people who, who privately value Miro to a much broader sort of public understanding from a big museum show that helps... That's right. Get these things on the public market, less of a risk for them to be so, sold if they're that, not from an estate. That's right. The the um, museum exhibitions definitely, you know, bring a lot of awareness. People understand more and more by seeing more exhibitions how important the artist is. And until these huge numbers are brought at auction, the market is more of a private market in the gallery place. And as Miro's more recently. Uh, you know, there's a Miro from the 20s in Paris sold for 20 million at auction, and now you're already getting a few 20 million dollar results by Miro. As that happens more and more, like Picasso or Giacometti, then it will give the collectors more confidence to consign their paintings to the auctions, and then the market will translate at the highest level, not only in the art, in, in private galleries, but in the public auctions as well. And that's very healthy for the mural market. And do you guys view that, the migration to the, the uh, public, you know, the auction market as a positive thing, or is it a negative thing because, you know, you're making these private transactions at a, a quiet, much higher le- level? Is that a, a, a thing you prefer to be Yes, pu- public auctions are very important because that is the most transparent part of the art market. So as... Uh, Nick Aquavella was saying earlier, when you have a collector in the gallery and, and you're giving him a price of a painting, you have to back it up with facts, with evidence, with reasons why a work of art is worth what it is. And the number one most transparent fact is the auction results. So if I'm selling a painting 
from 1925, and the price that I'm asking is $10 million, I need to show the collector that at auction, a comparable painting has sold for roughly $10 million. If a comparable painting has sold for $2 million, I've got a lot of answers. I've got to give a lot of answers. So yeah, I, I think also as knowledge is increasing, I mean, it, the fact is, is that through communication, through the internet, people's knowledge, there are more people who are looking at art. And um, as a result, when you get into, one gets into that situation where you know you've got a picture which apparently is comparable, that is a $5 million picture, there was one that seems to be similar that came up that made $2.5 million. Why is this one worth five versus two and a half? There is greater knowledge out there. Now, that may come through the advisor, but to explain what the difference is, maybe it's just an issue of condition, but maybe it's fact of saying, well, actually, you know, this was from a slightly more important year or it relates to more important series or this was the beginning of that cycle, that, that particular um, period. You know, we're talking about Miro, maybe it was the, you know, the first of the, uh, you know, the dream paintings. Those can be the reasons. And I find it, I'm certainly finding, I think the rest of us are finding that there is a greater knowledge, partly through the power of the museums actually putting the word out. I mean, I think more and more people, I think the numbers are increasing, the number of people who go to museums and just people who are looking at the websites and buying the catalogs and just being aware. Um, but I think just the fact that it's a combination of the internet, people have more and more people are aware of what's going on, not just the auctions, but with ex exhibitions. Um, and the fact that there's obviously much greater wealth being created yep. worldwide. So, you know, if you get out to the people, whether it be in all the places that Guy was referring to earlier and beyond, it's just going to increase the market, the number of people who are going to be looking. This isn't the end of the panel by any means. In fact, there's a great deal more to come, including answering that question about Mirandi. But for now, you'll have to wait a couple of weeks to hear the rest. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 